Please turn in God's word to Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9 is found on page 1164 of the Pew Bible. Last week we considered the disciples arguing on their way to Capernaum about who is the greatest. And Jesus teaches then what it means to be a truly great disciple. A disciple of Christ is a servant of all. Well, we continue to see what it means to be a disciple. And we'll notice that a disciple is serious about sin and being an influence for good. Let's read Mark chapter 9 and we'll read verse 42 to verse 50, the end of the chapter, to listen to God's word. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter like maimed than rather having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched where their worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame, rather than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell's fire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be seasoned with fire and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, this past week we have been listening to Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol on our journey to school. And the book opens with the ominous words, Marley is dead to begin with. Marley is Scrooge's old business partner. His ghost appears to Scrooge, informing him of the torment that he has been in, that he has no rest and no peace. He said, I wear the chain I forged in life. I made it link by link and yard by yard. I girded it on of my own free will, and of my own free will I wore it. Why is he wearing these chains well, it's because of his interest was only for business, making money. And he saw every person as an opportunity for business. He had no concern for them. And so now he finds himself locked for all eternity in these chains. But he does come to Scrooge to warn him to change his ways. For Scrooge was living in the same way as Marley. And if he doesn't heed this warning from the grave, Scrooge would suffer the same fate. Well, in our passage this evening, we read off a warning, a warning of hell, of eternal judgment, if you don't change your ways. 
Uh, so I want you to notice you are to take your sin seriously and you are to be a good influence so you can know peace and not hell. But since only Christ is the Prince of Peace, your hope is found in him. So firstly, you're not to cause a believer to stumble. Verse 42. So Jesus says, you're not to cause one of these little ones to stumble, who believe in me to stumble. Well, who are these little ones? From the context, we see that it's not children. Jesus had just rebuked the disciples for stopping a man casting out demons in his name. The little ones are all who serve Christ, all of Christ's disciples. The 12 disciples, rather than encourage this man, they were actively stopping him from serving the Lord. And this is a serious thing. You are to encourage one another in your Christian walk. You're not to be a stumbling block. You're not to cause a disciple of Christ to sin. How serious is it? Well, Jesus says it's deserving of judgment. That's why Jesus says it's better for a millstone to be hung around your neck and be thrown into the sea. A millstone, children, is a huge, round, flat stone that's moved by an ox to slowly grind grain into flour. And Jesus is saying, it is better to be killed in this violent way than face judgment. And Jesus isn't plucking this, this punishment out of thin air. No, this particular punishment was given out in those days, and the disciples would have been familiar with it. One example was Judas the Galilean, who was a zealot. He was basically a freedom fighter, fighting against the Romans. Well, the Romans captured him, and they threw him into a lake with a millstone around his neck. It's a shocking death. It was to get people talking so that no one would do the same. Well, Jesus is saying something horrific to shock his disciples so that they would realize that hell is even more horrific than this judgment. And we'll consider more of that in our next point. Well, what does it mean to cause someone to stumble? Well, we can think of leaders of cults or who capture people's weak minds. We can think of false preachers who deny the truth. They clearly place a stumbling block before their people. But it is much closer to home. If someone were to examine your life, would they be encouraged to live in the right way? Or would they think, oh, well, that mustn't be that serious. I see Philip doing that. If they saw your tax return or your credit card bill, if they saw your grocery list or your internet history, would it cause them to stumble? Your words, your behavior, your interests, your hobbies, other Christians are watching on, and especially younger believers. You are setting a pattern on what it means to be a Christian. So when a child is baptized in our church, you, the congregation, you take a vow. And you vow, do you, the members of this congregation, receive this child into your fellowship and promise to pray for her and to help and to encourage the parents as they bring her up in the Christian life. And you fulfill that vow, yes, when you pray, but also when you're a good example to that child. And we forget just how much an influence we are 
to the younger children in the church. When we slacken off, uh, we don't take our commitment to Christ seriously. We are in danger of causing others to stumble, particularly the next generation. The younger people in this church, they are looking up to you, the older people, to see what it means to be a Christian. And so you are demonstrating what it means to have a commitment to Christ and to his church, uh, what it looks like. So you can consider your attendance at church, your attendance at the Sunday school, your giving, your willingness to speak of your faith. And there are many other ways. The children in this church are watching on. They are seeing, well, that's what it means to be a Christian. And your desire should be to see the next generation of this church far exceed us in their faith and in their commitment. And sadly, too too often it's the opposite. The next generation of the church is not as strong, not as committed, not sharing the same fervor. And why is that? Well, it's because they were caused to stumble by the previous generation. So see the responsibility that you have. Remember Jesus' words. It's better for you to be tortured in unimaginable ways. It's better for you to be dead than to cause a younger believer to stumble. Well, secondly, heed the warning of eternal punishment in hell. This is verses 43 to 48. So Jesus continues this theme of stumbling, but now it's in regards to our own failure to deal with sin. John Owen famously said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And Jesus makes it very clear that the consequence is that of hell. God in his justice will judge all who continue in their sin, in their rebellion against him. And hell is a subject that we don't like to talk about. In many churches, hell is never even mentioned for fear of making people uncomfortable. But Jesus is speaking these words, and he often spoke of hell and judgment. C.S. Lewis said of hell, There is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this, if it lay in my power. But it has the full support of Scripture, and especially of our Lord's own words. It has always been held by Christendom. And it has the support of reason. Yes, we don't like this subject. John Lennon famously sang, Imagine there is no hell below us. That's all we can do, is imagine it. For the truth is, hell is real. Jesus clearly spoke about the reality of hell in this passage. And since it is real, the loving thing to do is not to be quiet about it, but it is to warn people about it. Earlier this year, there was a news story from Lafayette of a house fire. A young man was driving by when he noticed a house was on fire, and he stopped. And he went back to the house, and he ran around the back of the house, yelling to alert anyone inside that the house was on fire. But nobody answered his call. And he thought possibly everyone had gotten out. But instead of taking that chance, he went inside, he went up the stairs, and he found four children ranging from one-year-old to 18 years old. And after getting these children outside, he discovered there was another six-year-old in the house. And he went back inside this burning house, and he had to wrap his shirt around his mouth and his nose. 
He went through the smoke and the fire. He said it was like walking through an oven. And he crawled on the ground searching for the six-year-old girl. And when he found her, he had to break a window by punching it. He jumped out the window making sure he didn't land on this child he was holding. And he was described as a hero. That was uncomfortable. That took effort. But in his willingness to speak the truth, his willingness to go in and rescue, in this house fire, he was showing the seriousness of the situation. He couldn't ignore it. And it was serious. It was a matter of life and death. Well, hell is more than a matter of life and death. It's a matter of eternal life and eternal death. The effort that man took in raising the alarm and saving those children, it should characterize your concern in stopping people going to a lost eternity. Yes, it's uncomfortable. It's even frightening. But it's actually loving. So what we have here is a warning from Jesus. Jesus knows that your sin, if left undealt with, it will take you to a place of unimaginable and unending suffering. He warns you because he loves you. And the word Jesus uses for hell isn't the usual Hades. Instead, it's Gehenna. And this is an actual location outside Jerusalem. Notice the phrase that is repeated. The worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. In previous days in Israel's history there, well, uh, this place, Gehenna, was where child sacrifices were taking place uh, to the false god Moloch. And King Josiah, he put an end to that, and it became a rubbish dump. Not just any rubbish, but it was animal carcasses and the corpses of criminals. And it's no wonder that Jesus speaks of worms. Worms are present. They are slowly decomposing these decaying bodies. Part of the dump was on fire. It was continually smoldering. Again, it explains what Jesus meant by saying the fire is not quenched. It sounds a hideous, frightful place. And no wonder Jesus describes it as hell. It's also a description of what's found on the battlefield. When an army is defeated, their dead was often left on the field to rot or to be burnt up. And that was a sign of defeat. Isaiah the prophet, he speaks of the final judgment when there will be a new heavens and a new earth. And in describing those who sinned against the Lord, we read in Isaiah 66, and they shall go forth and look upon the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. For their worm does not die, and their fire is not quenched. They shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. And so Jesus is quoting from this passage. This ongoing agony where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, it tells us that hell is a place of everlasting suffering. Some want to believe in annihilation, that when you die, you are no more. That's not what's suggested by this text. Those who go to hell are not annihilated. No, it is ongoing agony. And Jesus gives us this picture of ongoing suffering, ongoing separation from God, You're separated from the love of God, and instead you face his wrath for all eternity. And so this picture is a warning to you that you are in danger if you continue in sin. So heed this warning. 
gospel. Thirdly, you are to kill your sin to enter the kingdom of God, verses 43 to 48 again. So how are you to avoid hell? Well, you have to get rid of the sin that causes your condemnation. How seriously are you to take it? Very seriously. So much so that it's worth cutting off a hand or a foot or gouging out an eye. That speaks just of how terrible hell is and how seriously you need to act to stop yourself from going to hell. Ferguson writes, there can be no reconciliation between the Christian and sin and no platform for negotiation. If we do not engage in the effort to conquer it, we may be sure that it will conquer us. We must put out the fires of sin in our hearts or we will find ourselves exposed to the flames of hell and separation of God, from God permanently. That's why Jesus uses such extreme language. Now, Jesus is not actually referring to self-mutilation, to be free from sin. The reality is the knife could never go deep enough. Sin originates from our hearts. But he is saying you are to go to battle against sin. You are to cut off what's happening to you or what's harming you. It's to be drastic. It's not to be half-hearted. McCloyd says growing in righteousness is a painful business, demanding us to crucify whatever passions or desires run contrary to God's kingdom. And so we read of hands. Hands refers to what we do. We use our hands to write or to type various messages. We use our hands to fashion various idols. Our feet, that speaks of where we go. We use our feet to take us to places that we shouldn't be at. And our eyes describe what you see. We see things that we desire, that we covet, that we lust after. And Jesus tells you that you are to cut it off, meaning you are to remove whatever it is that causes you to sin. It won't be easy because you often enjoy sin. Often sin will appear beautiful and attractive. It's not till it grows that you see its ugly side. But when you let it grow, it may be too late to remove it. No, you need to take radical steps. In the war in Ukraine now, both the Russian and Ukrainian troops are building trenches to defend themselves from being obvious targets. And that mindset of war and defending yourself is what you need to have. You have to cut out what the devil or the world will use to entice you. And you have to be drastic. It causes you to sin, you have to remove it. So if it's your laptop or your phone that causes you to sin, you have to have safeguards up to prevent you from going to sites that you shouldn't be on. You should use internet filters. You should keep your computer in a public place. If it's social media and the danger of getting mired into online messaging wars, get off it or restrict your time on it. If you find yourself at work spending too much time with a work colleague, bringing, bring other people into the situation. Keep professional in your correspondence with that colleague. Have accountability. Let people into your life, people who will ask you hard questions. This is what it means to cut off sin from your life. You have to take steps. 
drastic steps, steps that maybe seem over the top, but they're not over the top when the danger is that of hell. Many of you will be familiar with the story of Aaron Ralston, a mountaineer who was descending down a slot canyon in Utah. And as he was climbing down, a suspended boulder dislodged, and the boulder first smashed his left hand and then crushed his right hand against the canyon wall. And Ralston, he had not informed anyone of his hiking plans, nor did he have any way to call for help. And he was stuck in this position for five days, using up all his food, all his water. And after three days of attempting to break that boulder without success, he realized that he would have to amputate his arm. And I won't go into details about how he amputated his arm, uh, but if he would not, he would certainly have died. And after amputating his arm and the remaining strength and blood that he had, he managed to climb out of that canyon and walk six miles before finding a family to help him. And he was rescued four hours after amputating his arm. Well, that is the seriousness that you need to take, that Jesus is asking you to take in dealing with your sin. Sadly, in Christian circles today, sin is not taken seriously. There is an antinomian approach that even disregards the importance of keeping God's law. No, you are to take God's law seriously, and you are to take sin seriously. Cut it out, otherwise you put yourself in the danger of going to hell. This time of year, uh, many of you, our family as well, we like to light candles and there is a danger of candles. They cause house fires. And we light these candles because we enjoy the scent that they produce. But if that flame spreads beyond the candle, what do you do? Well, you radically intervene. You will throw your most expensive coat over it, or you will douse it with water, having no regard to the important papers all around that candle. You will be radical because you know the serious repercussions of that fire getting out of control. And so see sin in the same way. Cut it off when it's small, for it will grow and it will bring about destruction. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God, even though you've missed out on something here on earth. Whatever it is, it doesn't compare uh, to heaven. So kill your sin. Well, fourthly, you are to be salt off the earth, verses 49 and 50. As well as not causing anyone to stumble, you are to be a force for good. And Jesus speaks of how everyone will be seasoned with fire or salted with fire in other translations. And it's interesting that only Mark includes this quote from Jesus. And Mark has in mind his audience. Mark was writing to believers in Rome. They would be facing persecution from the Romans. And often this persecution was by the way of fire. Emperor Nero would light his gardens by setting Christians alight as human torches. Jesus goes on to mention that every sacrifice is to be seasoned with salt. And the Old Testament speaks about this, how uh, sacrifices are to be accompanied with salt. And we can read of that in Leviticus 2.13. Every offering of your grain Of your grain offering, you shall season with salt. You shall not allow the salt of the covenant of your God to be lacking from your grain offering. 
With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. Paul in Romans tells us to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. So what is the effect of the persecution of your willingness to present your bodies as living sacrifice? Well, it is to be salty. It is to be an influence for good in your community. Peter, who was the source of Mark's material, he also mentions uh, persecution in his letter in 1 Peter 1. He writes, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Salt has an influence of good. We need salt to stay healthy. We need salt to prevent corruption of food. And so your sacrifices and your willingness to be persecuted for Jesus, it is to have a positive effect. Paul, or Peter mentions that it's to the praise and the honor and the glory of Jesus Christ. Well, sadly, Christians, especially in the West, when they are persecuted, that doesn't cause a good influence. They seem to attract persecution by their bad behavior. They respond by grasping for rights. They even seem to enjoy the limelight that persecution provides them with. Jesus says that salt is only good when it has its flavor. If it loses its saltiness, it's good for nothing. And that's why Jesus says, have salt in yourselves. In Matthew's gospel, it talks about being salt in the earth. You are to be an influence for good. When Christians have had to suffer much, it has had an impact for good. Rather than hinder Christianity, Christianity has grown more and more. Tertullian said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Paul and Silas went in prison. They were salty in that they praised God in those difficult circumstances. And that had an impact on the other prisoners and especially on the jailer who would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and also his household. Now, it's unlikely that we'll have to face that kind of persecution. But what happens when people gossip against you? What happens when people do things, nasty things against you for your faith? Do you retaliate? Do you speak badly against them? No, this is where you have the opportunity to be salty in your response and to point them to God. And so ask yourself the question, are you an influence for good or do you cause people to stumble? Does your presence in a group of people, does it make a difference? And remember, you can't be neutral. You're either an encouragement or you are a discouragement. Hughes writes, our presence ought to quicken the conscience, elevate conversations, restraint, ethical corruption, promote honesty, and raise the moral atmosphere of society. You are to be an influence for good. Well, finally, notice Christ is a prince of peace. Your hope is found in him. So Jesus concludes, be at peace with each other. At the start of this passage, we had the disciples. They were arguing about who is the greatest. They were not being salty. Jesus concludes by saying, be at peace with one another. Quiet those desires to be seen as great. Instead, you are to serve. 
put to death the sin in your life by removing it. Be an influence of good. Be salt in your relationships. And the result is peace. But then why are churches so full of divisions? Why are Christians falling out with one another? Why is there brokenness even in Christian families? Well, it's because we cannot achieve this peace. And possibly you are in the middle of strife at this very moment. And you feel the weight of darkness and you're desperate to have this peace. You realize that you need to cut sin out of your life. But that sin won't leave you alone. You don't enjoy peace, but instead you have ongoing desires for that peace. Well, in Christ, there is peace. He is the prophesied prince of peace. He is the child that was born, the son that was given to us. And so as you prepare for Christmas this week, see the coming of Jesus Christ as the one who brings peace into your life. He is the one whom we find forgiveness when you have caused a little one to stumble. He is the one who removes not your hands or your feet or your eyes, but your hearts. And he has given you a new heart, a heart that is right with God. So you will not enter hell, but be secure in Christ's kingdom. A heart that is able to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. He is the one who is altogether good. And so he is salt in this earth. In him, you can bring peace into this world. And so as you celebrate Christmas with your friends and with your family, may you bring the peace of Christ into these relationships. He is your hope in the darkness. And so you are to look to him. You are to take your sin seriously and be a good influence so you can know peace and not hell. But since Christ is the only Prince of Peace, your hope is found in him. There was a lady in my previous church who was like a grandmother or even a mother to me. She had known much suffering in her life. Her husband died after five years of marriage, leaving her with a two-year-old daughter. And speaking about the death of her husband, uh, Margaret, this lady spoke of how God had brought them together and how he must have had a good reason to bring it to an end. Twenty years later, she would fall in love again, and she was engaged to a man who soon died with cancer. And in her pain and in her heartbreak, she sensed the love of Christ, that Christ was with her in all of this. And her testimony was powerful, so powerful that she was an influence for good in so many people's lives. She had a peace that was evident to all around her whether it was the children in her class, she was a primary school teacher, whether it was the people on the bus, she took the bus every day into town that she sat beside. Her hope was in the Prince of Peace, and that gave her peace that everyone wanted when they spoke to her. So remember, you are to take your sin seriously. You are to be an influence for good. So you know peace and not hell. But remember, Christ is the Prince of Peace, and your hope is found in him. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would help us to be serious disciples, that we would not be guilty of causing younger believers to stumble. Instead, Lord, that we would be encouragers. Help us to see what causes us to sin, that we would cut it out. 
Help us, Lord, not to be half-hearted, but that we would be serious, that we would be radical in removing the sin that impairs us. And Lord, instead, that we would be influences for good, that we would be salty, that in our relationships, uh, they would be evident by peace and not strife. And Lord, we realize that in of ourselves, we cannot do this. But we thank you for Jesus Christ. He is the Prince of Peace. We have peace in him. And so, Lord, help us to have a stronger faith, a stronger hope in him. We ask this in his name. Amen. Well, please turn in your red psalm book to Psalm 122a. In the red psalm book, 122a, in this psalm we are praying for peace, peace in the church, peace for our brothers and sisters. And let that be your desire for your brothers and sisters here in this room, that they would know peace. Let's stand and sing Psalm 122a.